Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Streams of Winter. Live Stream 8. Arya Stark. Hello and welcome to the Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much for tuning into our live stream this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about a fan favourite who has suffered and struggled tremendously but is very spirited and determined to survive. Folks, it's Arya Stark. What will be Arya's role in the upcoming book and beyond? To help me answer that, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Hello! Hey everyone! Welcome to the Saturday stream, and are we ready for some Aria? I know we are. We've been uh, eagerly preparing for this all week. We are excited to talk about her, and we're also excited to welcome today's guest. It's Scad from Davos Fingers! Welcome! Hey everybody! Thank you, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So excited. Uh, loved you guys for a long time. Just so happy to join and talk about uh, one of my favorite characters, for sure. Good. Well, we're happy to have you. She's definitely a a fan favorite, I think, that there's a lot to talk about here. We're happy that you could join us for this discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's, we're going to get started. Quick reminder before we do about spoilers. Obviously, books... Spoiler chapters, Arya has one very notable spoiler chapter from The Winds of Winter. The words of the author, anything goes, including references to the show, which we don't generally do in our podcast. And I don't think you guys uh, do either. So we, you know, we won't lean on it. We never really do, but we might reference it here and there. So uh, that being said, we'll uh, go back over to you, Yoke Boy. Let's get us started. Okay, so I've cooked up a few talking points that we're anticipating f- for Aya and the Winds of Winter. Let's begin. In the Mercy chapter, we see Aya overcome by the urge to take the life of someone who killed a friend, Lommy Greenhands. And it ends up that there's a certain poetry in the way that she does the killing. So... My first question, in what ways were the killings of Lommy and Raph similar, Lady Gwyn? Well, you know, it starts with uh, proof that she's really thought this out uh, in a short amount of time. Uh, she's convinced Raph to come back to her room with her. 
And she starts kind of chattering to him, telling him that she's going to teach him a line. I can teach you a line, she keeps saying. And then they get back to the to the room, and uh, he's ready to get back to business, which gross. But anyways, she reaches down and touches his thigh and comes away with her hand all bloody. He's got a leg wound now, just like Lamy did, uh, which she's somehow caused. And uh, she basically sets it up so that Raph, like Lamy, is there with a leg wound and says to Arya, you know, in order to get to the healer, you'll have to carry me, which is exactly what Lamy said to Raph. And Arya says to Raph, just like Raph said to Lamy, I think so. <laughs> and then she cuts his throat, which uh, in the Lamy scene was Raph stabbing Lamy through the throat with his spear. So really intense similarities, physically speaking, in the sort of, if we were, if we were actors in the blocking of the scenes, it's incredibly similar. Scad, you noticed another thing too, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a small thing really, but um, both deaths also are kind of taking advantage of assumptions that the people that, that end up getting killed have. Lamy has been saying for days that if you just yield, they'll take care of you. Just let's give in. Let's give up. You know, hand ourselves over. Uh, and, and fully expects that he'll be fine. Raph fully expects, has probably had fantasies like this, you know, for years or something, and fully expects this to play out in a very specific way. And in both cases, these deaths are quick and without warning uh, and, and dashing their expectations to the ground. It's a small thing, uh, but, but something I noticed. I, I thought it was really cool. It's, it's much more, uh, much more kind of in the ethereal than in the, the physical of the other stuff. So I like that. Yeah, and it's really worth going back to the Lomi scene and and you guys at home making your own comparisons because they do seem to be like for like on purpose. So, what does Aya's method of kind of replicating Lomi's murder and inflicting that upon Raf, the original perpetrator, say about? Arya's state of mind at the beginning of the Winds of Winter. And just to answer the question for myself, I kind of wonder if Arya's mythology speaks to a part of her kind of broken child soul that just wants to play. To me, she's playing. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Yes, I agree. I think uh, we're going to get back to this a little bit later. Uh, this this specific thing I'm about to mention, but there was an interview in which George referenced child soldiers and their capacity to view killing as a game. I think that has a lot of resonance with Arya, especially in this scene. Also, holy crap, is she a quick thinker? Like she got this, she got this plan set up and to the T in a matter of moments, really. She just thought of it, ran with it, and it was perfect. Yeah, and, and baited the trap well. I mean, uh, when you're reading the scene while she's going to the theater, she's worried about being late. It's a reasonably long scene where she talks about all the things she's passing by and the bridges she's going over, and she drags this guy all the way back to her place. Uh, you know, and so she's baited the hook well. He's interested. Um, quick thinker, like you said. Um, and also it makes me wonder if, you know, she's saying these prayers all the time uh, with these people that she wants to kill. Uh you know, I, I wonder how much thinking she's done about how she wants to kill each of these people, not just that she wants to. And, uh, you know, that, that she she was able, able to think so quickly because she's kind of had these things 
you know, boiling uh, on the back burner in her mind for a while. But I think it also speaks to the fact that she's got her priorities straight. When this opportunity presented itself, her mind went to it immediately. She is someone that will act. She's not just a thinker or a fantasist. She will really act on what she wants to do. So after the murder of Raph, which concludes the Mercy chapter, which is going to be Aya's opening wins chapter, do we think that Aya is going to return to the house of black and white? And I'm curious if you think, if you think yes, what, what will they say? Uh, Scad, start us off. Yeah, well, I had forgotten. Uh, LG had to remind me that this is that this was uh, the opening chapter for Arya, uh, or, or was like to be, because it's, it felt more like an opening chapter than ending, an ending one. Um, so I had thought, you know, previously that that this that this chapter would mean she's gone, that she's uh, got back to her list, remembered what it's important is, um, and you know that that she seems. If this is her opening chapter. I, th- I think there's a, a little bit of a time a time gap that we're dealing with because she's very much a more confident person uh, with all these things. She's been in this role with the theater for a while. They're trusting her with all sorts of different responsibilities. She's been there for some time. That's, you know, being a theater person myself, you don't trust just anyone to make sure you've got your costume straight. Um, you know, you, you earn that trust. And so um, I think she's been there for some time. So I thought maybe that there would be a chapter in front of this one where she was maybe reporting back to the House of Black and White, which we've seen her do um, kind of in the middle of when she was working with Brusco, she would still go back for, for nights at a, at a time. Um, but if this is her opening chapter, then I, I think maybe she, she isn't going to head back. I, I think this is a moment where she, she maybe is, is severing her ties. This is not something that they're going to look on kindly. Um, she kind of went all in last time getting the new face and, you know, she had been given the information. You can leave before that moment. You can leave. You're not one of us yet. You can go home anytime. But it feels like by going through that whole ritual and taking this assignment, maybe that was, she was moving away from that opportunity to leave. And they're not going to look kindly on, on what she's done here. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, Georgia said that mercy as as an identity is is finished, but I also wonder how much Arya as an apprentice of House of Black and White is finished because he said it seems like she she may have burned a bridge here. And so even if she doesn't go back, I wonder if there's going to be kind of any fallout from that because, like you said, she was offered that opportunity to leave, but then she kind of accepted the commission of the insurance man and she gained a fir- first a face for that and then another face for for Mercy, which is what she wanted, is what her stated goal was when she, you know, in talking to her mentors at the House of Black and White. So, you know, I worry that maybe, not literally, but, you know, figuratively speaking, there might be some sort of breach of contract that's happening here and that they're not going to be very happy about all that. So, I don't know. I don't think she's going to return there, but I also don't think she's quite done with Bravos because I still think that there's a chance for her to intersect with people coming back to Bravos from Westeros. And I'm thinking people like Tycho Nestoris and Justin Massey and maybe Jane Poole. We've talked about, you know, our thoughts of how Jane might end up going to Bravos. Uh, 
with the group that leaves from the wall. So I'm not sure how that would work out. But yeah, I, I think if she has more time in Bravo still after the Mercy chapter, we could still see the answers to the things you were talking about that, you know, like maybe some kind of flashback or, or memories of what it was like in the early days. Because I agree, it seems like she's been with uh, with Isambaro and the Mummers for for a while. I don't think she just got there yesterday. They, they seem to be pretty dependent and she seems fairly integrated. So, yeah. Okay, I would say I kind of would disagree with you guys on the fact on your idea that she might not go back. I think she will go back. They might not be happy with her, but I, I think they see her as a kind of rough diamond that can be polished and perhaps have a bit of leeway because of her age. But I really think that Aya's story is heading towards a place where she kind of topples her mentors. That That's just what I was, what I was thinking. Maybe I haven't been influenced by the show, but I, I think I thought that before. But yeah, just to give a, a different kind of voice and opinion, that that's w- what I would guess at this juncture. So... Jacken was the one who really encouraged Aya to go to the House of Black and White in the first place. He saw something special in her and he tried to enlist her in a, a, an assassin's organisation. So what qualities of Aya's do we think left an impression on Jacken Hagar? Scad? Yeah, uh, she definitely left an impression. I mean, in addition to, you know, saving his life, um, you know, that, that left an impression probably just on, on its own, but um, it wasn't that, uh, you know, I, I think he sees her as a resourceful person, very quick thinking, uh, as, as LG said before, uh, willing to take action, as Yoke Boy said before. And frankly, you know, as a lot of these organizations sometimes do, a little bit desperate, um, w- willing to accept the offer because she doesn't have a whole lot of opportunity available to her. Um but I think specifically the moment that that made him really think this is somebody we should we should consider is when she named him to die as her third name. It was an impressive bending of the rules he'd given her in this kind of game that they had that I think showed him that she's a little bit different than most. That's great thinking. I, I really like that point of view, Scad. It's um, yeah, it's hard to disagree. Do the House of Black and White know that she's a warg? Could they be seeking to use that talent? Because that's a, a very unusual talent and something they could, you know, as assassins, really use to their own ends. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, yeah, and, you know, that could explain um, a lot of their sort of willingness to look the other way about some things that she's doing that might break the rules. I think since uh, Plagueface tells her you have the eyes of a wolf and a taste for blood that uh, is some indicator that at least that person might know or suspect what's happening in her dreams. I have some reason to believe that uh, or wonder whether Plagueface is actually Jack and Agar because he's, he seems to know some things about her that, you know, maybe, or maybe there are other ways he would know them, but uh, we wondered about it. We talked about it in our regular episode so that could be, you know, if it's him, he might have his own reasons for keeping these suspicions to himself uh, and away from the men, from you know other members of the faceless men. But I, I do think 
you know, there's no real reason to connect this stark sigil with a taste for blood other than having some sort of knowledge that she's, uh, you know, maybe <laughs> having these wolf dreams. So I think they seem to be aware of it. Or, or even knowing her personal history, if it's Jocko, yeah. that she has killed. Yeah, either one of those <laughs> could indicate that he, that yeah. it's him and that they know what's going on with her. Yeah. Another thing I'd add is remember from the Varamir chapter that a warg can sense a warg. I'm sure that that's laid out between Va- uh, Bran and Varamir. They recognize each other. So Plagueface, if he if he's not who you're saying he is, maybe he's got the same kind of abilities and senses it. Okay, so I, I want to move on and talk about one of my favourite parts of the book, full stop, the theme of identity, which comes to the fore in Arya's story. It's really central to her arc. As we pointed out in our primer episode, she's taken on at least 18 identities. This theme is a rather sad one for a young girl who started the story as an innocent. So why... Exactly, does George employ identity in this young girl's arc so repeatedly? So, I'll ask you, what meaning is there in a character who is always forced to be somebody else? Scad, begin. Well, I, 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 wrote, a, I wrote an answer to this question, and now I'm, I'm realizing as long as it is, it doesn't actually answer your question. Um, oh, go ahead. <laughs> but but I, I think... I, I think that one of the, one of the things that's interesting about the identity question for Arya is that she actually always is herself, despite uh, all of these roles that she's she's had to to put forth and play. Uh, she struggles mightily to hide who she is on all of these occasions. Thinks about bringing it up all the time. Uh, you know, we constantly get reminders while we're in her head that she she's remembering who she is, that she's a wolf, she has a pack. She's worried about disappointing her family with all these things that she's doing. Um, she's always looking for a way back to one of them somehow. Um, and I think George mostly uses it in Arya's case. Uh, I think there are identity questions all over the series like you're talking about, Yoke Boy. But in Arya's case, I think he uses it to just show how strong a sense of self Arya actually does have. It's, it's one of the reasons I love her, such a, a young person, to have such a strong sense of self. Um and yeah, I have, a, I have a quote here that's it's a bit long, but um, I'll, I'll just read it real quick. Uh, this was in, you know, in, in answer to the question she gets asked many times, who, you know, who are you? No one, she would answer. She who had been Arya of House Stark, Arya Underfoot, Arya Horseface. She had been Airy and Weasel too, and Squab and Salty, and Nan the Cupbearer, a gray mouse, a sheep, the ghost of Harrenhal. But not for true. Not in her heart of hearts. In there she was Arya of Winterfell, the daughter of Lord Eddard Stark and Lady, and Lady Catelyn, who had once had brothers named Rob and Bran and Rickon, a sister named Sansa, a direwolf called Nymeria, a half-brother named Jon Snow. In there she was someone. That was not the answer that he wanted. Wow. <laughs> Great reading, Scat. Excuse me, I'm just going to go over here and cry. I stumbled no, a few I'm times. I'm going to go over here and cry <laughs> for a minute. No, beautiful <laughs> and so appropriate. Uh... And there's another much shorter one. You have taken other names, but you wore them as lightly as you might wear a gown. Under them was always Arya. And this is uh, Plagueface uh, speaking to her. And, um, I, I, you know, so I think even they know it, um, that, that she is herself in there. Um, so, again, I didn't really answer your question, but I think 
on Arya's side, maybe George is using it as a dichotomy to some of the others that are being these different people and, and lose themselves maybe a little bit easier than she does. I thought it was a great answer, Scad. And the quote under them was always Arya, you know, kind of summarizes her story for me just in one short sentence. So um, to add something on myself, I think that with the theme of identity in Arya's story, having to continually play different roles and having as strong as her identity is, as Scad says, having your identity challenged constantly is, for me, a slow form of torture. Many of us have had to be people that we're not, to wear different social masks in order to disguise parts of ourselves. And we all know how uncomfortable that can be. For me, this theme in Aya's story riffs on something a lot of us can relate to, but ratchets things up several gears. All of us, deep down, want and need to be ourselves, but we can't always be and it hurts. Well, I agree with you both. I think, uh, you know, my input would be, you know, her her core identity is always very strong uh, in the face of all her training to become no one, you know, but from the faceless men. Uh, we see her just always being Arya in her head or in her heart of hearts, even when she knows that she has to set that aside for her own good or in order to achieve the goal that she's trying to achieve, she never releases that that core little bit of herself that she hides away. So uh, from in the ugly little girl, uh, when she's being instructed on giving up her identity, it says she almost bit her lip again, but this time she caught herself and stopped. My face is a dark pool, hiding everything, showing nothing. And I think this is really cool because it proves that she's capable of deceiving, at least on the surface, even you know these professionals who seem to notice everything you know, she's she's learning how to get away with it uh because she has to yeah and this is this is part of why i think that she's going to end up kind of having to trump them as part of a you know a plot point in her, her arc to kind of best best her mentors and get away with it but we're going to talk a lot about this in the course of the episode yeah if could i could i riff on your idea real quick yoke boy about about the identity um, and, and you, you put it very well about how challenging it is to be challenged all the time and, and try to be who you are. And I wonder if, if her childlike nature allows her to cling to herself a little bit better than an adult being challenged in such a way would. And kind of like the child soldier thing that you're talking about, they just have a different way of perceiving reality that maybe makes her a little bit less vulnerable to it. Uh, that, that that ratchets up her ability to you know to deal with it, but it is it's heartbreaking to watch either way. It's just something I thought of just now. So just no, I definitely agree. An adult is kind of more set in their ways, aren't they? And children do have a this kind of more elastic mind, perhaps. And to to carry on with the identity discussion, so we see this play within a play in the Mercy chapter. I thought it was incredibly smart. I loved loved the whole th- concept. So. In this play with a play, is Arya being an actor just another way to explore her struggle with identity? Is that the whole purpose of this bloody hand play? What do you think, Scad? <laughs> uh, well, I love it. I love it too. I'm a, I'm a third grade actor myself, and uh, you know, so seeing things like this, uh, I, I just I just eat this stuff up. Uh, definitely gave definitely give me some Hamlet vibes. 
Um, we even get a, a very specific uh, piece of language in there. To, uh, they're talking about Tyrion maybe actually being the dwarf on stage and, and doing it in plain sight to tweak her nose, referring to his sister to kind of, um, you know, kind of show her face in it. And that's language very closely uh, used uh, to, to Ham one of Hamlet's soliloquies, the one in which he actually has the idea to put on the play within a play to catch the conscience of his king uh, and, and his uncle. Um, but anyway, beyond that, back to the identity thing outside of my nerdy thespian stuff. Um, yeah, I think it's another layer. And, and kind of back to my point before, it, it almost seems like she isn't struggling that much with it. It's just another job for her. She's taking to it really well. She loves all the lines, saying other people's lines. She's kind of really into it. Um, she seems to enjoy it, and maybe that's a little bit, a little bit alarming that she's kind of into this face-changing assassin gig a little bit. But also maybe that, like we just talked about, maybe you know, being a kid, she's kind of just able to put these identities on a little bit differently than an adult might. Yeah, I think so. I think um, well. Her apprenticeship with the Mummers is supposed to be about her learning the artifice of being someone else. So it's the the kindly man tells her that that Mummers changing their faces with artifice is different from just wearing a face or from the glamours of sorcery. So she's I I think what he says to her is that uh, she will learn all of those things over time. Uh, so this is just another aspect of of learning how to change her identity. She's she's got to learn to kind of present the whole picture, not just the face. Uh, so I I think it's interesting. This apprenticeship with the mummers is really just another layer of this theme of identity in her arc, which comes up over and over again. I think it's not about her struggling with it because she seems like you got like you said pretty she's pretty comfortable with it. Uh, but but it's there, and it's it's George telling us that this is is major theme here. So another layer to the training. I love it. Yeah, yeah it does feel to me that she's been acting for a long while. So no wonder she's taken to it pretty well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. now I have a I have a question. <laughs> I want to I want the answer in a really short sentence, guys. Will Arya lose this kind of internal battle? And finally become no one. Go for it, Scad. Nope. No. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I'm not, we're not even going to discuss it. We one. just cannot face thinking about it. <laughs> there you <laughs> have it. Her story is about not becoming no one, I think. So if she... We all agree that she is not going to become no one. So what factors are in place preventing Aya from completely losing her sense of self amidst this kind of barrage? Lady Gwyn. Uh, well, you know, there's her stark, what we call her starkness. Uh, she's so many qualities that we would call stark qualities. Uh, she's got those warg abilities, which mark her as unique and keep her tied to her identity of origin. I mean, it's hard to give up your identity when every time you fall asleep, you're a wolf running around in the Riverlands. I mean, that it's something that is, it's kind of like an anchor, uh, if you look at it that way. Plus, yeah. let us remember that Needle exists. Needle still exists in this story. It is um, her, it's 
for her represents everything about home and her family and everything she loves and everything she's missing and wants to get back to. And uh, we we think, uh, we've talked about this in, in our podcast, that there's very strong indication that Needle was back in the Mercy chapter. Uh, it's very symbolically when she stabs Raph, uh, you know, she first kind of cuts him in the leg with with a, a obviously a smaller knife but then she has this long skinny blade hidden up her sleeve and that's what she uses to uh, slash his throat and that appears oddly enough at the very moment when in the chapter she becomes aria for the first time she's mercy 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 all through the chapter and when she says to raf think so she becomes aria and then that long skinny blade comes out of her sleeve stabs him through the throat so I think that's Neil. That's what we've maintained for a long time. Uh, not everyone agrees with that, but anyways, whether you do or not, Neil still exists in her, you know, in, in her storyline. So it's, if it's not back now, it's pretty. I'm pretty sure it's going to come back at some point. Ugh, man, that's, I didn't even notice that. That's <laughs> why you guys are the best. First time Arya's name was used in the chapter, did not pick that up. Wow, Thank you. nice job. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think you nailed it. Um, I-, I guess I would just add from a reader's perspective, you know, in addition to all the things you said of, you know, the starkness and everything for us, we see her thoughts and, you know, when you have your own thoughts, you're not always really conscious of all the things they really mean to you. They're going through so fast and everything, but as a reader, we're reading them. And I think it's clear. It should be clear to us that George wants us to see how anchored she is, whether or not she realizes how much all that stuff is anchoring her. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So continuing along these lines, patron Quarren Halfhand. Hi, Quarren. Is a huge Aya fan. So a huge shout out to you. (laughs) And he wonders about Aya having had so many male mentors. How prevalent is her father Ned's influence upon her character? Might this influence give her something to kind of grasp, grasp and hold on to and embrace going forward? Scad? Well, uh, you know, (laughs) it's a complicated question. Uh, I think Ned's influence is huge. First of all, um, she has lots of things. You know, even her, you know, her older half brother John, um, or cousin, if you will. Um, you know, mussing up her hair and, and being a role model for her in that way, kind of being a black sheep, kind of like she is. Um, but Ned comes up lots of times. I don't think Ned's influence is being, um, you know, too much negatively impacted. It's like, uh, you know, it's like when when a family has another kid and you know, the, the young kids are like, Hey, are you, does that mean you can love me less? It's like, no, just, there's just more love in the bucket, right? She's got more male mentors with, you know, the, that are bringing more to the table and it just adds more. I don't think it, it, it negates Ned's influence much. Um, and I, I think they all give her things to hold on to. Um, we see over and over again, Sirio's influence in her, in her head, you know, the swift as a deer stuff that saved her life. How many times in the river lens. And, um, I think she takes things from all of them. Uh, yeah, I think so too. Uh, definitely agree with all of that. I think that Ned's influence is just huge. Um, all of her kills so far are related in some way to Ned, Ned's death or Ned's ideas of justice, including even, you know, obviously all the people that she killed 
in Westeros. So people that were on her list, they were related to this very specifically. But even in Braavos, so she's killed Darion in the Night's Watch. Well, that was obviously stark justice. He was a deserter from the Night's Watch. He deserved death. But even when she accepts the commission to kill the insurance man, you notice if you when you read that chapter, she's not... She doesn't just say, oh, yeah, I'll kill this guy and go observe him and come up with a plan to kill him. She observes him and she has to kind of cook up all these ways that he's bad or evil. She keeps coming back and saying, well, I think he does this and he must, you know, he must be bad in this way or that way. She's basically at a make herself believe that he has uh, that he has violated some code of humanity, that he deserves death. And even in spite of the kindly man telling her multiple times that that's not what we do. We don't judge people. She's like, mm, yeah, but I judge people. So she ultimately has to come to a place where she has judged him worthy of death before she can go through with that. So that I think is hugely, you know, an influence of her father and uh, or specific or Northern culture, maybe more broadly. So, uh, you know, in time as her, understanding of all this stuff gets more nuanced i think that his influence uh, will only grow in her because she's like you know she's never gonna be able to leave that that behind her she, you know he's he'll be with her always and um so his influence is not going to be eroded no matter what happens you gotta be careful quoting star wars around me you'll lose me <laughs> i'll be with you always <laughs> we're just like now we're <laughs> off on a tangent sorry guys which just became a star wars podcast <laughs> hey everyone i've been on the go recently phoenix kansas city chicago if you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home you have an airbnb Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thanks for those fantastic answers, guys. That was uh, very enjoyable. And we're talking about this kind of internal struggle for identity that almost defines Aya's story. So at what juncture can we envisage envision her finally being able to kind of let go of this internal war? And for it to be a chapter in her past, what do you think, Scad? Well, I have a couple. I have a couple thoughts. Um, they're kind of they're kind of in conflict with each other. So the first one I think that's really going to set her right is when she gets reunited with her with her family, um, when and 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 gets that feeling of safety back. Um, she's been in a in a position where she's basically fighting for her life, uh, you know, every day. 
the House of Black and White has mitigated that to some degree. She's got meals now, but she's under a very strange set of rules that if she doesn't follow, you know, she's kind of out again. So uh, she's compromising herself in a different way just to stay there, which is dangerous. Um, so either that, that, that she'll then be able to let it go and put it behind her, or when she either finishes her list and gets that sort of um, that feeling of completion and, and justice that maybe she's looking for, and that would be putting it in her past in a very different and negative way to me, um, but putting it in her past nonetheless. Or when she does what I hope she does, which is start to pursue her list and realize realize the fallacy involved and and move past it herself through some... I don't know how she'll do it, but that's what I hope for. Excellent. And... The Faceless Men do offer a sort of tempting endgame for Arya. The ability to change identities at will. You know, they kind of swoosh over their faces and change who they are. And they can become no one. Arya must gain something from all this training, right guys? On a literary level, she must gain something. Will Arya ultimately able to be able to gain this ability without compromising herself her own self if so how is she going to do that how's she going to pull this off what do you think scad well yeah i mean i think she's been doing it um you know you get it in her mind all the time they're asking her and she's like well i can't say that because i don't want to hear that answer um and i think the murphy mercy chapter is more proof of it um that she's taken these skills she's made them her own and she's still herself and she's kind of trying to do so while leaving the dogma um of just killing for this god by the wayside um yeah yeah i think um she's so consistently aria in her thoughts and has shown that she can like i said she can deceive her mentors or she's at least learning how to do that but i think in the mercy chapter it strikes me that she's really crossing the rubicon she's taking her training and exerting it for her own purposes, which is something that the kindly man and plague face have told her the faceless men never do full stop. The kindly man says to her, when you slew the singer, you took the God's powers on yourself. We kill men, but we do not presume to judge them. Do you understand? And in that scene, she says yes, but she thinks <laughs> no, <laughs> so much I love. Yeah. It's so Aria. And then later when she's talking to plague face, he says to her, we never give the gift to please ourselves, nor do we choose the ones we kill. So, I mean, she's just, she's broken the rules. So, um, yeah, I don't think that, uh, I don't think there's really any going back. That's one of the reasons why I think she might not be able to go back because uh, she's she's been instructed about these rules pretty firmly. So, Okay, so earlier on we did touch upon this quote from George where he compared Aya to child soldiers, those unfortunate souls who find themselves surrounded and participating in murders from a very young age. So, can I ask the question, is Aya now a cold-blooded killer? Or is the situation more nuanced than that? Lady Gwyn? Yeah, I think definitely more nuanced. The other part of that interview, the comment in the interview, was uh, it was Charlie Jane Anders interviewing George, saying, you know, when you first introduced Aria, you knew she was going to become an assassin? Oh, question mark. And George says, 
well, she's not an assassin yet. You're assuming she's going to become one. She's still just an apprentice. So, yeah, I think I think there's a lot more nuance than just Arya is, you know. <laughs> so she's not quite a full-on cold-blooded killer. Scud, I, I'm guessing that you're going to tell me that it is more nuanced, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it wouldn't be George's work if it weren't more nuanced. You know, I'm rereading it and and a cold-blooded killer, kind of. I mean, I said I said yes, it's more nuanced than that, but she is willing to do it and and uh, has made the judgments in her mind ahead of time of, of who deserves it. Like like uh, Lady Gwen was saying about even about the 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 loan shark guy, the underwriter. You know, she she justified it and then she was okay doing it, and so. You know, I think as long as she can put it in her terms, she's willing to do it. I don't know whether that defines her as a cold-blooded killer or not. I, I guess so. Um, from the child soldier perspective, that's a little—it's a little different. Um, you know, they are brainwashed. Um, you know, obviously this is a—it's an affront to humanity what what they're doing to these kids. And Arya's arc has a lot of a lot of hardship in it, where she's forced to deal with things you know, that, that have a traumatic effect on her psyche. And she's had to do one killing, like we said, on behalf of the House of Black and White already. But I I think rather than being a brainwashed machine that's just, you know, put the gun in her hand and she, you know, point it and she'll pull the trigger, she's a thinking killing machine that's doing the judging and determining what's right or wrong. That's still dangerous. Um, but it's more like a transaction to her, you know, that she's weighing and measuring and seeing if she thinks it's the right thing to do. And do we think Aya can become less bloodthirsty as the plot continues and ultimately reintegrate back into kind of normal society, quote-unquote? Scad, what do you think? Could she, could she become like everyone else and kind of forget these nightmares? I mean, I think it depends, and I'm certainly not an expert on this. Um, you know, I've, I've lived a very fortunate life, free of, of much conflict. Um, but I think it depends. A lot of people never shake these kinds of traumatic events. They have PTSD about them. They have episodes, trauma their whole lives, and they can't, they can't really move on. But you can move on some, um, and, and things can get better, uh, and you can learn to cope with them in certain ways. And I think if she can find her pack and walk, and, and if she can make a conscious choice to walk away from the revenge herself, I think that would go a long way to, you know, kind of getting her away from that bloodthirsty feel that you're talking about. So I'm, I'm hopeful that she can. That was beautifully put, Scared. Thank you. Lady Gwyn, are you going to add something onto that? Yeah, I mean, I think she can, um, but it's going to be on her own terms. This, this child, you know, that's we talk about characters a lot and I think um, as analysts I, I know I'm sometimes guilty of forgetting that you know sometimes these kids are just kids right so but she's as a child she's shown shown incredible strength uh, but she's also shown a consistent longing for family and for home and uh, for for belonging getting back to her point of origin so if she makes it through, and I think we can assume if Paris McBride has anything to say about it, that she will. <laughs> she will be a model of 
female power, and I don't mean power as in military might or, or uh, you know, physical power. I'm talking about the power of tenacity, of, of determination, caring, caring as in caring for your pack and loyalty. She's shown herself to be so incredibly loyal to her friends and her family. Uh, she will be someone that kind of takes takes it on very much on her own terms. And I, I think even though her society, the society that she originated from, probably doesn't have a lot of space for someone like Arya in it, I think that she will, uh, she'll be able to forge a space for herself in there because she's so strong. Yeah, I, I, yeah, well put. The sh- I, I don't watch the show, but but I know kind of vaguely what happened. The show kind of ran away from that a little bit, and and had her not reintegrate. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. She it's an she interesting left. Choice for I them. mean, I, so I, I don't, yeah. I, you know, it was it was kind of it was a good ending, but I think um, she left. So I, I, I kind of would like yeah. to see Arya more stay and carve out a space for herself and just be like, I'm here and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I belong here and I'm not leaving. So, yeah. Well, it, it, it's clear to me that the major thing that can help Arya heal as a human, is family life to, to me, to get back to Winterfell and to, to meet the surviving members of her family. So let's go there. Let's talk about the relationship with her sister. Arya began the story in a sibling rivalry, rivalry with her sister Sansa. In many ways, these two are oppositional. Yet, they are both Starks in their hearts, and now have both suffered enormously as well as losing family. And I have a quote from A Game of Thrones from Ned. Let me tell you something about wolves, child. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Summer is the time for squabbles. In winter, we must protect one another, keep each other warm, share our strengths. So if you must hate, Aya, hate those who would truly do us harm. Sansa is your sister. You may be as different as the sun and the moon, but the same blood flows through both your hearts. You need her as she needs you. So my first question following that pertinent quote, do we think the sisters will meet again? When? Where? How? Lady Gwyn. Yes, I do. Uh, I think... That is the yes, they will happen at Winterfell after each one of these girls, uh, young women, has negotiated the return leg of their journey, uh, which I think is what we're going to be seeing in the winter, winter, really. Last time we see Sansa, she was poised for the next phase uh, of her arc, possibly some a phase that's going to bring some moral ambiguity through her continued association with Peter Baelish, but one that seems to be moving her closer to home, to Winterfell. Arya, as well, is is moving on to a new phase. Her conflict is quite clear as she's navigating this apprenticeship with the faceless men, but it's also clear that she's unable to fully abandon her true self, as we've been discussing, and memories of home. So I think that is right where she's going, and whether she, you know, we could 
debate whether she stops somewhere along the way, but I think that's where that's where reunions are going to happen. Yeah, I, I tend to think the same. I mean, it's possible it's at the wall through some sort of earlier conflict or something, but I don't think that would have the emotional resonance that George is going for. Um, so yeah, I would say probably Winterfell. And after their traumas that they've both undergone, which are going to have changed them, let's face it. So ultimately, how will each sister now view the other? And I'll begin. If Arya and Sansa meet, there has to be a kind of new self and a recognisable old self, in my opinion. I don't think their sibling rivalry will just kind of evaporate. In fact, I believe the rivalry would be a good sign that underneath their new selves, that they are loving sisters who haven't let go of what they used to have. But on the surface, they will accept changes in each other as they have accepted the changes in themselves. Yeah, that's that's beautifully put. Uh, you know, it's a lot. It's actually a lot easier, I think, to accept change in others than it is to accept change in yourself. Uh, we come by change ourselves really hard, but we see change in others as growth and look at the positives of it. And um, and and because we care about them and we love them, we look we 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 look for positive things and ways to love them. And with a genuine relationship with love underneath, which Sansa and I very much have. Um, that rivalry will remain. They'll find a new way to fit together. There's going to have to be, you know, a feeling out period where they learn these new roles and these new changes and how to respect each other in the right way uh, and how they've grown, but they'll fit together somehow. Yeah. 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 I, I want to just begin with or add something that uh, George told fans uh, in 2000, which was 20 years ago. <laughs> Uh, yes, this is how long people that much and longer people have been talking about this. He told fans that Arya was one of the first characters he created. Sansa came about as a purposefully as a total opposite of Arya because too many George felt that too many of the Stark family members were kind of getting along and all you know going in, in the same direction. And real families aren't usually like that. So he created Sansa, and uh, he ended in this interview by saying that they have some deep issues to work out but if we go by ned's words in game of thrones uh that the pair are the sun and the moon there's this sort of those those are complementary things you know uh, we could look at another complementary metaphor that could be applied to this pair of girls which is the shield and the sword sansa being the shield Courtesy is a lady's armor is kind of her catchphrase and, and the sword, obviously, Arya with her personal identification with Needle. So uh, these these pairs don't, neither one of them exists. Not, not the sun and the moon, nor the sword and the shield can exist without the other. Uh, they kind of, they, they work in concert with, she thought, with, with each other, always in complement. Uh, so... I think really that's how the sisters relationship works. And George has said that, okay, they have issues to work out, but they need each other is what their father has said. And I think he's absolutely right. And he's, again, he's speaking to the future. So uh, their reunion is going to prove that the solidarity of sisterhood can really overcome even the most diametrically opposed uh, personalities, at least on the diametrically opposed on the surface 
because I think really they're they're working in parallel kind of for the same goals. Diametrically opposed, but not foes. To paraphrase Hamilton. Yes. <laughs> That's very interesting, Lady Gwen. And I know that you're a sister, so I'm giving this next question to you. What will George's message about sibling love and sibling rivalry ultimately be in regards to these Stark sisters? Well, I, you know, one of my favorite essays I've ever written in the in the fandom it was about Arya and Sansa and their and their relationship. This is years ago for the Pont Player Project, predating Radio Westeros, probably even by a year or two. But uh, in which I I pointed out that sisterhood refers to the relationship between two females who share a parent or parents, right? That's pretty basic. But there's a secondary definition of the word, which is the solidarity of women based on shared conditions, experiences, or concerns. So while George admittedly created Arya and Sansa as these complementary characters, I think that the shared bond of their sisterhood has embedded a blueprint in the arc of each girl. Uh, Their arcs and the roads that each one has to travel following their parting in King's Landing really do move in tandem with each other along what appear to be opposite paths, but if you follow them throughout their arcs, you can see they have so many points of actual comparison. And uh, one of my favorite ones was in the scene when Ned is being beheaded and Sansa tries to protect him. She's tried to shield him with her words. She's, she's you know, done what was asked of her and tried to use her lady's courtesy to shield her father. Whereas Arya's out in the audience and when she sees what's about to happen, she tries to rush, you know, she's stopped by, by Yorin, but she tries to rush up there and protect him with needle her sword. So Two very opposite reactions to the same thing, but they're both doing, they both have the same goal. So I think in in truth, they're both heading towards a common goal, a common outcome, which is reunion of the family, reformation of the pack. And, you know, Ned, those words of Ned to Arya in A Game of Thrones, we keep coming back to that. It just, they just so much reflect the values that these girls and their family were, was, we're raised with, and that's going to over- affect the outcome tremendously. Lady Gwyn, you have a really enlightening way of viewing these sisters. Yeah. So thank you for that. It's obviously something you've spent a lot of time studying. I really appreciate your input there. I'm an arrogant. I'm an arrogant guy, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not about to try to mansplain sisterhood. You know. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, guys. <laughs> okay, so. Why don't we move on to relationships of a different sort for Aya. Aya is used to being alone and is grown fiercely independent. But George has confirmed that she will flower in the winds of winter. So could Aya become increasingly interested in romance? And if so, patron Judson Bates wonders if this means Gendry is a potential future suitor as she was in the show. What do you think, Scad? I'm a big Gendry fan. Uh, I am, while I admit all their, all their faults, I'm a, I'm a Baratheon supporter in, in my way. Uh, I'm also, as I've said, a big Arya fan, but I don't want this. 
I really don't. Uh, I, if it does happen, I hope it's some sort of a dream of spring, future development years down the line, some sort of looking back thing maybe. But I, I mean, if there's going to be one, if she's going to, if, if this is true and she's going to flower and, and grow in this way, then, you know, Gendry is the only candidate we got right now. Uh, you know, we had, we had Ned Dane perhaps, you know, er, early on in, in the Riverlands, uh, a little relationship there. Um, but you know, we don't, we don't have much else. So if it's going to be somebody, it's going to be Gendry, but I don't really want it. I know. I have to say my, it was like, maybe, but <laughs> she's, she's definitely got a connection. She's been shown to have a connection. And, but you said, you mentioned Ned Dane. There's, there's two Edricks in the, in the books. Uh, there's, Edric Dane, Ned, and Edric Storm, and Ned Dane. Yes, she had a she had that brief connection with him. Uh, it was very brief, but but it was there. And I think exploring that further would be a really neat parallel between the the Stark Dane stuff from the Tourney of Harrenhal. So, and I do think that he's going to come back later in the story. So I, George has said that we're going to see more of House Dane, I believe. So that would be that would be interesting, but. Uh, regarding Edric Storm, we have to remember that even though Arya has had nothing to do with him, and I don't think there's any anything really in the text indicating that she will, on the other hand, Gendry was conflated with Edric Storm in the show. So, you know, I just have to throw that out there because show Gendry being so, so much kind of a collection of things and not just what book Gendry is. Then again... Or early kind of interactions with the commoner Micah and other, you know, people who were the small folk that she's shown to be have a lot of caring for and, and friendships with might just indicate a future for her that just stands outside societal norms, which supports go gets back to Gendry. So I, I do want to say this, though. I don't think that every character has to be or will be neatly tied up buried off or settled by the end of the story. Think about like our own, your own life, right? In my experience, by the time all of my generational peers were settled, uh, there was already those who had then become unsettled. So, you know, you go over a period of time, you think, oh, oh, my family, friends, cousins, everything, they're all married off, settled in their lives. But by the time you get to the last one, some of the first ones might be actually moving on to do different things. So there's really no point in, in a real life where everything is tied up with a bow and nicely, happily ever after. I really don't think that that impossible dream is worth chasing. I don't think it's something that George is going to do for us. So yeah. If George Disney's this, it'll be pretty disappointing. <laughs> not not Arya specifically, but like you know, like use it all of it in general. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so earlier on we well we went in depth actually on the theme of identity. Let's talk about another of Arya's themes. Revenge is a theme that touches several arcs from Sander and Gregor to those wonderfully tasting fray pies. I wonder what George's message will ultimately be about revenge and what that could tell us about Aya's future. Revenge can be a great deal of fun in literature, as all of us probably know. I wonder, does George like to tempt us into enjoying it, Lady Gwynne? 
Yes, of course he does. <laughs> we are constantly, <laughs> constantly put in a position of being bloodthirsty as readers. We're always craving reparation for wrongs or something or someone to get what's coming to them. But uh, the viewpoint structure is very interesting, isn't it? Because having we have internal thoughts of even uh, bad people or people that we might have thought in the first book were evil, bad, and deserving of vengeance being wreaked upon them. Then we they you know turn around and, and they're humanized in ways that encourage empathy and maybe kind of reevaluating those characters where they're coming from and and whether they're actually deserving of what we earlier thought they were deserving of. So I think especially in light of the consequences of vengeance that George likes to show us, you know, this is, it's such a complex issue that he, he definitely seems to be leading us in there. It's kind of like a trap. And then, you know, we get we get nabbed wanting somebody's blood and then you know, it's maybe it's maybe revenge isn't everything it's cracked up to be. Yeah, we even get with Arya herself and, and Sandor some of exactly what you're talking about, about this desire to do him harm and then a growth in, in perspective of, of who he is. And as a reader, there there are for sure Sandor fans, but but a lot of them a lot of people think he's a bully as well and that he deserves some, you know, some comeuppance too. And uh, but but as you see more of him, you know, you you will always reevaluate your position there too. Happened with Jamie. See, I, lo- I love the way you put that. Revenge. It's it's one of those vicarious things, you know, through literature that you can really just let yourself go. And um, you know, we're we're in a position in, in this country right now where, you know, a lot of us are feeling like maybe there's some revenge to be taken in some way. And we know we, we can't. That's not the way things are done. You know, but literature allows you to kind of live through that a little bit and dwell in it a little bit and maybe even take a little bit of satisfaction out of it when you can't do that in your regular lives. And so George is a master of playing us against ourselves in these things, like you said, LG, and he does it really well. He does most things really well. Um, but yes, he's going to tempt us into it. He doesn't have to tempt me that hard. <laughs> I'm here for it. Right. I like your use of vicarious there, Sked. I think that sums up, just that one word sums up how I feel about it. (laughs) So I wonder about Aya's list that she kind of dreams about before she goes to sleep, etc. Is Aya's list really about vengeance or is there something else going on, Lady Gwyn? I think it's more what we like to call stark justice. Uh, It's bringing what is, what is due to these people according to that, that, that thinking of what justice is murder, kinsling, oath breaking crimes like that are all punished very strongly in, in Northern culture, uh, mostly with capital punishment um, there. And that's, we talked about this in an episode a long while back about how these things are all violations of the social contract, which is very important in Northern culture because existence is so fragile because of, you know, long winters and, and 
you know, they really have to have this social contract where people can depend upon themselves, where a maiden can walk, you know, the king's road in her name day suit and not be not be bothered by anybody. That's a strong social contract. That is a society that that is looking out for its weaker members uh, in, in lots of different ways. And we see that playing out all across what we learn about Northern culture. And let's face it, we learn more about the culture of the North specifically than we probably do of any other region in Westeros. So I think that her, her list feels like it's about vengeance, but when you kind of dig down deep into it, it's really more about bringing this justice to people that have wronged Arya or her family or her friends or, or her culture in the case of Daron of the Night's Watch. Well, not that he's on her list, but you know, her, her killings in general. So. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it, uh, I'll maybe just put it a little bit differently, but I think it starts out as vengeance for her, probably. She's a young girl and she's using it as a coping mechanism to just, you know, other than tear her hair out, what can she do? Well, she can seethe over this list. You know, she doesn't know how to unpack her feelings in an effective way, and so she can create this list of vengeance. It's hard It's hard to deal with the trauma that she's been through and and maybe that's an effective way for, I mean, I'm an adult, I can barely do this. So, so I think it started out as a salve for her, for, for that vengeance. But I think for sure in Darian's case, she definitely saw that as justice and, and maybe she's moving, moving toward that as well. You know, like you said about the, the, the gentleman in, in Bravos, she needed a reason. She found one so that she could give justice. It wasn't, it wasn't as simple as just a job. It's maybe not as simple as vengeance either. Maybe maybe it is justice. So I think you put it well. Still, I hope she gives it up. Yes, don't we all? And patron Christine wonders if Aya will continue with her list through the winds of winter. And I know, Lady Gwyn, you're keeping tabs on this list because it's quite difficult <laughs> to keep up with it. So where are we? How, how many names remain? And what do you think? Will Aya give it up? We're we're down to five: Cersei, Marin, Illyn Payne, Gregor, and Donson. And Gregor's like a half. Yeah, <laughs> little does Arya know she's so so close, and she's clearly thinking of it. I, she's she certainly will be thinking of it. She thought of it a couple of times in her final Dance with Dragons chapter. She, the list isn't explicitly said in the in the Mercy chapter, mostly because she's Mercy until right near the very end, but. Obviously, she's thinking about it because Raph was on the list. Now he's not. So, yeah, I think, you know, it, it's going to be close. It's going to be very, very close because she's down to five five people. And a lot of those people's days are numbered anyways, I think. Yeah, you mentioned the, the Mercy chapter. It's, it's so often, you know, these names are just in her subconscious, just rattling around in there as she needs a, a touch point about what she's about. In, in the mercy chapter, it's not in the subconscious; it's the superconscious. It's mm-hmm. it's the whole point of the chapter, and so mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 very much on her mind. Um, as I've said before, I, you know, I kind of hope she doesn't go through with it, um, but I think she's going to start start the pursuit of it at least, uh, and you know, we'll see where she lands. Okay, so she has this list before Aya becomes more settled and peaceful as we're hoping right she perhaps needs to use her newfound assassin skills 
to make the whole House of Black and White storyline seem worthwhile. So, does Aya's character need a big kill before she can change? Scad? Oh, a big kill. It, it, it just... I think she's going to get one. I think, I think you know, the hero's journey kind of a thing, you're right. It, she needs to show some use with these skills. But I think it actually needs to be a big kill after she has changed. So a different kind of kill. Using the skills she's gained, uh, but a non-vengeance kill, a non-contracted kill, something where she's moved on and she's now doing it for a noble reason. Killed to save a life or, you know, something. That would show she could learn to use these skills. Kind of like the question you asked earlier. She could use these skills to her benefit but leave all the crap out of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. I I agree. I think that, or or maybe that the this this is a, the kind of killing that leads to change. You're just putting all those skills to good use you know, with something that's positive and forward facing, rather than vengeance, which is inherently uh, a negative and backward facing thing. So. That would give her journey, I think, the narrative punch that we really expect from George would be, you know, a suitable twist for Arya in the end to do something quite positive with those, with all those skills. You both gave great answers, you know, and made me think differently from how I've been thinking about it and give me hope that we can have a big kill, but not in a kind of bloodthirsty manner. That, that we're used to. So it's really kind of opened my mind to that. The big kill we can all live with. <laughs> yeah. Well, remember, we are dealing with George here. So, <laughs> you know. Okay, so let's get on to the final set of questions today. And I want to talk about something that we know is going to happen, really. Will Arya finally come back to Westeros? And is it, is it going to be in the Winds of Winter? If so, how? What's the details? What do you think, Scad? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and 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 the details. I was like, I don't know. Seem. I feel like I'm missing something. Seems easy. You just threaten the the captain again with the coin and and be done with it. Uh, but I mean, she did that by accident last time. Seems seems like she could do it on purpose this time. But but <laughs> she's no dummy. <laughs> yeah. But to you know, on the timing, more specifically, like how you know, I envision that. Yeah, she'll maybe spend some time in Bravos. I didn't think about all those other people coming back she might interface with for whatever reason George might have in store, but she might be in Bravos for a little bit. She'll make her way over to Westeros. Hopefully, you know, in, in my canon, she's she's chasing the list for a little while, has some sort of hopefully Nymeria-driven event that, that that moves her beyond wanting to deal with that list and and starts her journey, starts her journey north a little bit. And um, oh, I realize I'm, I'm jumping ahead to a completely different part of my answers here. But <laughs> anyway, I, I hope that she's she's starting her way, and and you know the future book is is used for more wrap up stuff with family and, and things like that to the main conflict. Yeah, I just I think that the the whole narrative point of the Winds of Winter is going to be drawing all of our point of views back to start. She, we're we're contracting. Yeah. You know, every the first five books, everything was going outwards, kind of like the Big Bang. And if you uh, subscribe to the, the version of the Big Bang theory, that at a at a certain point, it it gets to maximum 
maximum outward spread and then begins to contract. I think that's where we're going in the winds of winter. We're, we're bringing all those expanded threads back together. And I think that that is more than likely the main difficulty that George is struggling with in writing the winds of winter is, is bringing all those threads dispersed all over the place back to relatively few physical locations. So definitely. Yeah. And making sure those threads don't make another knot. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Having to do that smoothly is is not easy, as as we've seen. And even even throughout these uh, these live streams, when we're talking through various character you know arcs and where we see they're going, we're constantly having to be like, you know, oh, check ourselves. Wait, what did we? What do we think is going to be happening with this character that might affect this character? And you know, the further we get into this, it becomes in- increasingly complex and difficult. And I mean, really, just personally, gives me so much respect for the job that George is is doing right now with this story. And that's why we should be patient. Yes. Thank you guys for joining us today. That's the end of the discussion. But Scads, you've been a fantastic guest. You brought up so many great points that I'd never thought of and helped me refine my own point of view. Why don't you take a minute to talk about your podcast and hopefully grab a few subscribers? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks. Thanks for having me. You guys are you guys are the best. I love you guys. Uh, it's an honor to be here and you know learn from you guys and modify my positions as well. Like you're saying, I'm Scad. I'm, I'm now what is one half of Davos Fingers, uh, the other being my buddy Matt, uh, who we always get together and, and podcast together. We do an episode every three weeks. Uh, right now, we're in the middle of a "What If" series where we take a moment in the series and we say, "What if it went a little differently?" We recorded last night a "What If." Oberyn had cleanly defeated the Hound and lived, or sorry, the Mountain and lived, um, and what that had. And like you were talking about, LG, pulling all those threads of everything that would be affected by these things is very challenging and also a lot of fun. So give us a listen. You can find us at uh, scaddy.podbean.com. That's S-C-A-D-D-Y dot podbean.com. You can also find us on iTunes and all the major all the major apps and stuff. We're very active on Twitter at Davos Fingers. Um, you can find us there if you have questions. But uh, yeah, come give us a listen. It's a very casual environment. We're not near the analysts these guys are. We uh, sit back and, and have a little fun. But you know, it's it's uh, it's it's less organized, <laughs> but uh, but a lot of fun. It really is. You guys are great. I know we've we've loved you for years. We've been on, like Ari and Sansa, we've been on parallel journeys through pod- podcasting. We have. You guys started a couple months before us, I think. And yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right around the same time. So uh, yeah, you know, and uh, we will be having your partner, Matt, on very shortly. Yes. He was uh, couldn't join us last week because of a family emergency, but he will be back and we are really Truly looking forward to that. We love talking to you guys. So. Yeah. Thanks to Aziz, the Davos Collarbone. <laughs> Thank you to Davos Collarbone for support. being our utility player uh, last week. We appreciated yeah. that so much. So, uh, yeah. No, thank you again for being here. Thank you all you uh, people who have been listening to us, You know, engaging in the chat. We love you guys. 
Uh, we appreciate you so, so much. And uh, thank you as well to people in the future. I always uh, like to recognize that this will be, this is being recorded. It'll be up on YouTube and will be out as a podcast. So hello to all you guys. Hope you've enjoyed this discussion. Uh, next week, we will be back talking about a, a much more sort of theoretical discussion than any of the streams we've done so far, which have all been character-based. We'll be talking about the prologue of The Winds of Winter, and our guest is going to be none other than Joe Buckley from the Isle of Faces uh, podcast. So we're excited for that. So back over to you, Yoke Boy, to lead us out. Yeah, we will be back next week, same time, same place, next Saturday, talking the Winds of Winter prologue. We'll give you all the information that's available and have a discussion about that. Thanks so much to everyone who's tuned in today. Don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button. And if, you, if you'd like to support Radio Westeros, please know that we do have a Patreon campaign with all manner of patron benefits and you know we'd love it if you partook in that and so thanks again stay safe and see you next time goodbye bye for now botox cosmetic out of botulinum toxin a fda approved for over 20 years so talk to your specialist to see if botox cosmetic is right for you for full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.